Was that wrong? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. How the hell is that Mike Florio's job? So what, the f*** did he know? Monday edition of PFTPM. It's supposed to be a slow day and a slow week. It's the Monday after the 4th of July weekend, but plenty of things happening in the NFL. And the biggest news came out of nowhere Monday afternoon, the new contract between the Kansas City Chiefs and quarterback Patrick Mahomes. As reported by Adam Schefter of ESPN, the deal runs through 2031. That is one of the longest-term deals I have ever seen. And I have a lot of questions about why Patrick Mahomes would commit for that long. Think about what can happen in a decade when you're talking about a player on a given team. The team could be sold. Who knows? You can't rule that out. You will definitely, well, I don't want to say definitely, but most likely have a new coach by 2031, most likely a new GM by 2031. A lot of things will be different by then. Do you want to have no exit strategy? Do you want to have no off-ramp? Do you want to be tied to the team beyond the point where the team is tied to you? And remember, the team is only tied to you as it relates to the years that are fully guaranteed. After that, you are tied to the team for as long as the team wants to keep you. And once the guaranteed money is exhausted in any contract in the NFL, the years after that are basically one year at a time options held by the team. And as long as they think it's a good deal for them to keep paying you what they're supposed to pay you, they'll keep paying you that amount. If they think it's too much, that's when they rip it up. That's why, in this case, it's way too long for Patrick Mahomes to come in unless, and this is a big unless, and this is something that a lot of people I suspect are trying to chase right now. And maybe by the time you see this video, we'll have an answer. So I apologize in advance if this video quickly becomes obsolete by the news crush that is going to happen in the aftermath of the news of this new contract. But the only thing that causes the Mahomes deal to make sense for that long is if he's the first player in league history to get a commitment that he will earn a percentage of the salary cap because the cap is going to keep going up and up and up. And I know what you're thinking. Next year, it may not. Well, that's why what you do is you pick a certain salary and you have a percentage of the salary cap in each year. Whichever one is greater is what the player will get. That's what Patrick Mahomes needs to have if he's going to be committed for that long. I, I'd like to think that he got that kind of a commitment before he made that kind of a commitment, but we'll see. If, if not, it's going to be, in my mind, a very, very disappointing outcome because whatever the numbers are, and they're gonna be huge, right? 10-year extension, $400 million contract, gigantic, 40 million a year, that's been the number we've all been pegging. But $40 million a year isn't going to be that big of a number five years from now, seven years from now. That was the problem with deals that the Eagles used to do when Joe Banner was the team president. The Eagles would identify their talented core players early and sign them to ultra-long-term deals. And inevitably, those players would end up pissed off about the terms of those deals. And the Eagles were like, hey, 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 you took the guaranteed money. You took the signing bonus. You signed the contract to deal as a deal. Now, I don't know that the Chiefs would do that with Patrick Mahomes. And Patrick Mahomes doesn't seem like the type who's going to get agitated that way. But there's a chance he left a lot on the table if he didn't get a commitment that he'll get 16, 17, 18% of the salary cap, whatever the cap is in any given year. That's the key detail. And here's hoping for his sake that that is what will happen. Here's hoping for his sake and every other NFL player's sake and every coach's sake and every executive's sake 
that this week the NFL and the NFLPA come together and get a deal done on what training camp will look like, what the preseason, if there is one, will look like, what the regular season will look like. And we've got a variety of stories that were posted over the weekend from a document that I obtained that shows what the NFLPA wants on a bunch of different issues. No mandatory hotel stays during training camp. No 11-on-11 activities on the practice field at any time all year. Testing on a daily basis when training camp starts with the possibility of reevaluating later if there aren't a lot of false negatives and false negatives are the big concerns. No meetings of any kind in the team facility. All meetings occurring virtually. Basically, you're going to show up at the facility, get ready for practice, go practice, come back, change, and get the hell out of there. The meetings will all happen at home like they have been the entire offseason. These are all things that the players want. Also, no preseason games of any kind. Now, here's where it becomes difficult to discern what the players really want and what is just leverage for bargaining purposes. Because if there are two things you want, you need to ask for four and relent on two so both sides feel like they're getting a bargain. So chances are the union really doesn't want all those things. They've just thrown them some things in there so they can make concessions and get the things they really want. I just don't know what they really want. And here's the other thing to keep in mind. You know, the NFL doesn't really have to be doing this. The NFL wants to be a good partner with the players. The NFL wants to have good PR. The NFL knows it would come off as heavy handed if it just said to the players, these are the rules. Tough. Deal with it. Then you got to worry about the players poking holes and complaining and the union poking holes and complaining. And in theory, you have to worry about an argument that the workplace is sufficiently unsafe to justify what they call a wildcat strike, where the players just walk off the job. And there have been wildcat strikes throughout the country during the pandemic. People who have union contracts who haven't felt safe and said, I'm out of here. Now, when you're talking about NFL players, you're talking about high stakes poker because if it ends up being an illegal wildcat strike, the damages become astronomical fairly quickly and the union and the players would have to pay it. So I don't know that it ever comes to that. And here's the other reality. The, the players proved in 1987 they can't make a strike stick. If some guys walk off, plenty of guys aren't going to walk off. And for every guy who does walk off, what's going to happen? There's going to be some other guy out there who gladly takes his place. So I... I guess my point is this. When push comes to shove, the NFL is going to say these are the rules. And if there's an impasse, there's not going to be some arbitration or mediation or, or, or there's an impasse on these points. If, for example, the NFL is bound and determined to play two preseason games, even if the union is saying no way in hell, no preseason games this year, the NFL just has to say, look, guys, you, you've already agreed to the CBA. You've already done it. You agreed to the labor deal during the pandemic. Okay, we're going forward. These are the rules. We're exercising our prerogative under the CBA to reduce the preseason from four games to two. We can do that. We can reduce it to two without your permission. We're playing two. You want zero, too bad. You probably want zero every year, too bad. You want no 11 on 11 activities in practice, too bad. Okay, we can only give you so much before we get to the point where we can't get our teams ready. So keep an eye on that because the NFL is trying to create the perception 
that is cooperating with the players and empowering the players to shape these rules because they need the players to buy in. They need the players to feel like they're responsible for these protocols so they will follow them. See, it all falls apart if the players don't do everything they're supposed to do in the facility and away from the facility. That's why the NFL is doing it. But if push comes to shove, the NFL is the one with the power to do the pushing and the shoving. And meanwhile, the coaches and the general managers are completely and totally in the dark. We posted something over the weekend with quotes from unnamed coach and unnamed GM. And obviously, it's a sensitive situation. Nobody's going to go on the record with this. But they're upset. They don't know what's going on. What are the rules going to be? The coach said, hey, they just expect us to immediately have a plan for dealing with whatever they tell us the rules are going to be, even if there's no advance notice. We need to have an opportunity to figure out what we're going to do. So we need to know what the rules are as soon as possible. Same thing for the general managers. They need to know what the rules are. Everybody needs to know what the rules are so they can prepare for what is coming. Otherwise, it's going to be potentially chaos for some of these teams. Now, you know, there may be other teams that look at it and say, hey, whatever it is, we'll figure it out. I mean, do you think Bill Belichick is sweating any of this? You tell him on a on a Friday at noon what the rules are going to be for training camp starting Monday, for example. And by five o'clock on Friday, he'll have a binder full of information and strategy and planning, and he'll be ready to go. Whatever the rules are, he'll figure out how to comply and he'll figure out how to take advantage. Not in a bad way, but he'll find it's, it's like, you know, it's like when you play a board game, remember board games, anyone board games, the rules were on the inside of the cover when you open it up and yeah, here are the rules. So if you want to win the game, sometimes you have an aggressive interpretation of the rules. And that's what Bill Belichick does. He reads the inside of the cover of the board game and he figures out what the rules are. And then he figures out how he can use the rules to his advantage. And that's what he'll do. So I think this chaos actually helps a guy like Bill Belichick. So he's probably enjoying all of this. Needless to say, he's not the coach that, uh, that, that, that spoke to me on an anonymous basis over the weekend. But the bottom line is coaches, GMs in the dark, they want to know what's going on. Everyone wants to know what's going to be going on with testing. Testing is such an important aspect of this. And right now, we don't know how good the testing is going to be. Look at what baseball is going through. Three days to get a, a, a result back on a test. It's got to be faster than that if it's going to work in football. And again, the players want testing every day. They want saliva testing. They want testing every day. They're concerned about false negatives. You can't have testing and then let the guy in and then pluck him out if it turns out he was positive. That's not how it works. You got to keep him out until you know that he's negative. And you got to be damn sure it's not a false negative. All it takes is one false negative, one person who slips through the cracks and gets into the facility and gets out onto the field during a practice or during a game. I mean, this is why the players don't want 11 on 11 practice activities, because there is a chance you're going to have somebody out there on the practice field who is positive. Now, it's unavoidable in a game setting, but the key is going to be testing, efficient, reliable, and plentiful testing. And if you don't have that, that's one of the things that could cause this whole experiment to fall apart. It's a combination of testing and it's a combination of players doing the right things when they aren't at the facility. I'll talk more about that tomorrow. But those are the two key ingredients, testing and responsible action by the players, both in the facility and out of the facility. 
All right, big story over the weekend. If you were following us at PFT, it just felt like one domino after another was falling. It started on Friday with the stunning announcement by the Washington franchise that they will undertake a thorough review of their name, which quickly became obvious. The name will change, possibly by the start of the 2020 season. And then came the Washington Post interview of Ron Rivera, the coach in Washington, who's made it clear he wants the name to change. He's got a couple of names that he likes. He's working with owner Daniel Snyder. Snyder out of the country, keeping a very tight nucleus of advisors, none of whom work for the team. It feels like he's alienated from the process. But at this point, with FedEx speaking out, with Nike speaking out, with Nike taking all Washington gear off of its website, and now with other companies like Dix and Target and Walmart not selling any current Washington gear. Now, I thought there would be a run on the stuff containing the name that's about to go away. All the fans of the team that like that name, they want to go snatch that gear up because they want to have it. They want to wear it. They want to continue to represent the team with the name that's going away. It may be harder and harder to find. And anybody that has some, you may want to check eBay because there may be some jerseys and hats and jackets and stuff bearing that name that is selling for a pretty penny now and into the future once that name changes. And I think the closer the name is to something that honors, as Ron Barrow wants to do, Native Americans, the more relevant the outdated name will be. That's why you can make the argument, you can make a complete break from anything having any relevance to Native Americans. To make that name even more meaningless, make that gear even more meaningless if you have done a hard turn and a 180 and it's something that has nothing to do with Native Americans. And as, as I've been saying and writing at PFT, I, I think the National Congress of American Indians and other representative groups need to have a seat at the table. They need to be consulted as to whether or not they even want to continue to be associated with that franchise. It's possible their attitude is, screw you guys, frankly. We've been trying to get you to do the right thing for years. And now, only after you get significant economic pressure from a couple of your sponsors, do you decide to move forward. FedEx was founded by Fred Smith. He is one of the minority owners of the Washington franchise. Robert Rothman, Dwight Shar are the others. Sunday's news, and we broke this as it relates to Smith and Shar. They have been trying to sell their interest. And this isn't something new. The way that the Post reported it was Shar and Smith, and they added Rothman to the mix. It creates the impression that it's something recent, that it's something new. My understanding is they've been trying for a while, unsuccessfully, to sell their interest in the team. And the reason they're struggling, you don't have any say. You own a piece of the team, but you've got no power. You've got to defer to Daniel Snyder on everything. And, uh, you know, really rich people don't like to be in a position like that. So the people who may be in a position to buy a chunk of the team at a valuation of $3 billion, which means if you've got uh, 5%, well, my math is going to fall apart here quickly. What does that work out to? 1% of $3 billion would be $30 million, right? So 5% would be $150 million. Do you want to write that kind of a check? for something that you would have no say over, no power over, and maybe based on everything you've heard about Daniel Snyder, he's just not the kind of guy you want to be doing business with. According to the Post, that's why Shar and Smith and Rothman want out. They're done with Daniel Snyder. And it creates an interesting dynamic because I wouldn't be shocked if as the indignity settles in 
for Daniel Snyder, the billionaire who's used to always getting his way, having to change his name of the team after he came out and said in 2013, he will never put that in all caps, never change the name. He may just decide, I'm going to cash out, sell it to Jeff Bezos, sell it, sell the 60% he owns and maybe the other 40% that the minority owners hold, just sell it all to Bezos and let him take the thing over. And I don't think the league would be upset about the guy who runs Amazon being one of their partners as they try to figure out long-term streaming deals. You know, it's one thing to do a deal with Bezos when he's not one of the owners of one of the teams. It's a very different dynamic when he's one of the people who is actually at the table with you as you're trying to figure out what these contracts are going to be. So let's keep an eye on what happens with these minority owners. They may sell and get out of it and someone else comes in as a partner for Daniel Snyder or maybe Snyder gets out and they stay or everybody gets out and somebody comes in and buys 100% of the franchise moving forward. Last thing for today, and this obviously isn't relevant to football, but it is. The Cleveland Indians Friday came out and said they were looking at their name. And on Sunday, manager Terry Francona said the time has come to change the name. Now, look, it's not a slur. So I don't have a problem with Indians. I don't have a problem with Chiefs. It was very easy to say the Washington name has to go because it's a dictionary-defined slur. It gets more complicated analysis, and it's really up to the teams. And, hey, they want to consult with Native American representative groups. They want to consider their alternatives. You know, for some teams, it's, it's, a, it's a, nice, uh, a nice goosing of the brand if you have a new name. Now, the Chiefs, I don't, you know, they're, they're at, the, at the pinnacle right now. I just wonder if the Indians change their name at what point the Chiefs just at least have the conversation. And, and I'm not saying that anyone other than Washington needs to change their name. The Edmonton Eskimos recently decided after deliberating and thinking about it and consciously wondering whether or not they should change their name, CFL franchise decided they're keeping their name. Maybe the Indians will ultimately decide to keep their name. Maybe the Chiefs would decide to keep theirs if they at least engage in a conscientious review of whether they should keep it. I just think in this moment, it makes sense to take a step back and recalibrate and reconfigure and reevaluate the name. And maybe you decide it's fine. And that's fine if you do. I got no problem with it. It's not a slur. Now, the, the headdresses, I, I think you need to rethink some of that. The misappropriation of the culture, those can be problematic. And also, hey, anyone that has a problem with disrespect to the national anthem, when it's done for strategic reasons, the, the shouting in unison of chiefs in place of the last word of the national anthem, kind of disrespectful to the anthem. So there are some things that maybe the organization and the fan base should take a closer look at. But uh, that is the decision that's got to be made by the franchises. It's not nearly the no-brainer that, that the Washington name was. And look how long it took to change the one that was a no-brainer. So an issue that isn't going away because the Indians are looking at their name. I'll be interested to see if the Chiefs end up looking at their name as well. All right. That's it for today's PFT PM. We'll continue to do this until PFT Live returns two weeks from today on July 20. But every day, a rundown of everything that's happening in the NFL and plenty of things are happening as we get closer and closer to training camp. Remember, next week, the franchise tag deadline is coming for long-term deals. Dak Prescott, Chris Jones, and others either will or won't do no new deals. So plenty of reasons to stay tuned to ProFootballTalk.com. Check us out every day for PFT PM. Have a great Monday. See you back here on Tuesday.